0: I'm Richard, and welcome to Torks podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of January 20th, 2014. Join us this week as we talk with Ed Nordskog, Senior Arson Investigator for the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, about his new book, Fire Raisers, Freaks, and Fiends, Obsessive Arsonists in the California Foothills. We'll also visit with historian Mark Chevalier, Lava's 2014 Visionary of the Year, to discuss one of his more recent obsessions, Hollywood's late, great Schwab's Pharmacy. So stay tuned. Los Angeles.
1: El Pueblo. Lotus Land. The City of Angels.
0: The Day of the Locust. The slide area. Where all the fruits and nuts ended up when they turned the country on its ear.
1: But you and I were born here. Don't mind a few oddballs in the mix. They
0: add flavor. Growing up in Cheviot Hills, my compass pointed straight to Fifth and Main.
1: As a kid in Hollywood, I was forbidden to take the bus to the Central Library. But I did it anyway.
0: Because you've got to start at the center to understand this confounding and fantastic city.
1: Which makes nonsense of history and breaks all the rules.
0: Rainer Banham said that.
1: He taught us well.
0: In the 1980s at UC Santa Cruz. Now on our tours and in our time travel blogs, we're continuing the conversation.
1: Raymond Chandler's Los Angeles and Charles Bukowski's The Birth of Noir. Route 66, The Lowdown on Downtown. The Real Black Dahlia.
0: Positive public space. Endangered landmarks. Forgotten lore.
1: Memory maps. Mysteries. Murder.
0: The allocation of resources.
1: The hidden forces that shape public policy. Skid Row. Bunker Hill.
0: Preservation.
1: Restoration.
0: Redevelopment. It's
1: a four-letter word.
0: Los Angeles. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can drive around and take a long, hard look.
1: And listen to the stories.
0: And pass them on. Why are we
1: doing this again? Because we love the place with a passion that goes beyond sense or reason.
0: So did Rayner Banum.
1: So we did. Now let's begin.
2: You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid rope, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long-lost neighborhood. Called Herbina between South Pass and Highland, Park Grants. Can't eat the sunshine, but it's a gold mine.
0: Welcome, everyone. Thank you for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of January 20th, 2014. Kim, it's, it's great to be back, isn't it?
1: It's been sort of refreshing and wonderful at the same time.
0: We'll, we'll we'll talk about that soon. So, thank you. Here we are. We're back. 2014. This week, two guests. Ed Nordskog, Senior Arson Investigator for the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. He's going to be talking about his new book, Fire Razors. Freaks and Fiends, Obsessive Arsonists in the California Foothills.
1: How timely.
0: Second guest, Mark Chevalier. Mark is the Lava Visionary of 2014. Yeah, we gave him the award. He's a genius. He's going to be talking about Schwab's, his most current obsession. It's going to be a lot of fun. Kim, we have a lot to talk about. We've been away for a month. We need to get back on the saddle, get back to talking about things that matter. Our Closely watched Trains episode is now. We're already in it. We're already here. We have an update. We have an update on Union Station. Last time we left you, uh, I'd spent uh, a lot of time writing a lot of letters to a lot of people associated with the management of Union Station. Uh, Newspaper articles are written. And now, Kim?
1: Well, the whole notion of blocking off all seating in the historic National Register, Union Station Great Hall, to anyone who does not hold a ticket on some very specific conveyances, uh, Metro, Link and Amtrak, that's over. Uh, the There was a meeting of everyone involved in Union Station, the press was there, and they started asking questions about seating, and sure enough, they are in the process of reopening at least 30% of that seating to the general public, the uh, article that was in the Times, which we will link to, was really quite heartbreaking and I think terribly important because uh, all of the media that was coming out of uh, Metro about why they were blocking the seating made it sound as if, you know, basically it had turned into the black hole of Calcutta in Union Station with homeless individuals who were just really argumentative and dirty and nasty harassing the humanity that attempted to use the station in other ways. And in the LA Times, there's a story about a woman who escaped from an abusive home with her kids and ran so quickly that she had no shoes and was trying to get home at Christmas time. I mean, come on. We're human beings here. It's a beautiful, important building. There are better ways to deal with antisocial behavior in public places than simply making it impossible to sit down. So let's hear it for Union Station, making some progressive choices and reopening that seating.
0: We're very excited, and Kim. Just to uh, clarify, when you refer to the black hole of Calcutta, you're specifically referring to the old Santa Monica Jail, <laughs> which is which is mentioned extensively in Raymond Chandler's short stories.
1: I wasn't, but thank you. Yes.
0: <laughs> All right. Just uh, we we still have a lot to talk about, but just in case those that are wondering what what we did. Well, we were off. Well, what we did was was go uh be very much in the thick of pre press for your novel, Kim. But we'll get to that in a second. Um, in in the course of we've of, been
1: on vacation. Ha.
0: I, I I wish yes. we were on vacation. Just we're gonna throw out some some links for you. You wonder what Richard's been thinking about in his time off. I've uh, been thinking about PenFlip and books as platforms. We'll we'll include those links just just so you you're, you're not scratching your head. Pen Flip is a version controlled collaborative writing platform. Uh it is not I, I it's it's built on top of something called Git, which is version control. I used git to keep my wife and I from killing ourselves in pre-press for her novel. Um, but what I didn't do, because I didn't find it till too too late in the process, was Penflip, which is a way for um Kim and I to make corrections on either one's manuscripts and and, and to let Kim's word be the last one.
2: Oh, That's a and, good and, program. And, and, I like
0: this. And, and and so it's 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 but it doesn't have anything. It it it, it hides all that stuff. All any, anyone that's not a computer programmer is thinking, why do I need this? You do look at it. It's great. I want to support Lauren. It's it's a great project.
1: Access to tools. It's what it's all about. Access I mean, to tools. What, what I've been thinking about during our time off is just what an incredibly great time it is for writers. Uh, there's a whole community out there of people who are producing their own manuscripts, their own literature, novels, nonfiction, what have you, and getting it out there. And it was really driven home for me today when I got my list of pre-readers from library thing. I had a competition for 100 people who want to review the book to get it in advanced reading copy. And I've never seen a more international list than this list of 100 people who want to read The Kept Girl, everywhere from Brunei to Romania to Devon to Watsonville. And yeah, one person in a prison who somehow figured out how to get emails. So God bless them. It's uh, going out into the world. It's a really neat time for writers,
0: right? And just the last, the last link will leave you with as to what Richard thought about on, on his month off from podcasting. Books as platforms, which is exactly what you were just what you, what Kim just said. I just said again in in a very short sentence: books as platforms. I'll leave it at that. It just the promise of the ebook. It's it's really interesting. Um, I will leave you with simply this. Kim and I, for a long time... Oh, we solved the, the Chandler map problem, didn't we?
1: <laughs> Not yet, but we're, we're, we have Kim, some interesting Kim, Kim, things coming down the pipe. Kim,
0: Kim, Kim and I fight about two things. We fight about maps, and we just solved that problem over the holiday. And we fight about the app, whatever this, this esoteric app is. And about two and a half weeks ago, I realized that an e-book is an app. And it's 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 the best app I could possibly make. So um, that having been solved, we're, we're getting along much better, and and everyone will be happy for that. So we're gonna move on. Okay, right. Street cars.
1: Um,
0: Kim, <laughs> oh, you sent wait, me, yeah, back
1: to the st- closely yeah, watched yeah, yeah. trains and things yeah. that drive us crazy. Right, so,
0: Kim, you sent me an interesting article. I liked it. I just want to throw it out there. Uh, it's, it, it pulls the lens back on the streetcar debate. Do they work? Do they not work? And it, it talks about the fe- at the federal policy level, why funding exists and how funding exists for streetcars and, and why everyone's talking about streetcars now. It's, it's, I, I found it really nice to change the, change the lens on that argument and look at it from so far away.
1: Yeah, and of course, just the lobbying that goes on, because who wants a streetcar more than someone who's putting millions of dollars into a piece of property? They lobby really hard. It's something to think about.
0: Kim, we had dinner with um, a lot of people at City Think for LA Magazine two weeks ago, and, and one of them was Nathan Masters, and he was in a really, well, he's in a really good mood because so it was a great event, but I think he's pretty proud of it, uh, correctly so, of the article he just put out for Los Angeles Magazine about the recently reopened Ace Hotel. In which, the
1: Texaco Building. Right,
0: the, the, tex- the Texaco Building, 1927, Walker and Eisen. It houses the United Artists Theater, which is, of course, the showcase for, the production company, studio, distributor, United Artists—super fantastic, great article. Uh, just we're, uh, we, we're 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 really excited. We've been talking to Yael at Ace, which has now converted that office theater into a hotel, and we're just very excited about uh, getting people into that space because everyone wants to know, and a great way to start to know is is by looking at at Nathan's article in Los Angeles Magazine.
1: Yeah, and the and the UA. We've always talked about it as the UA rather than the Texaco just because the theater is so prominent. It's been such an interesting preservation conundrum because it was a beautifully preserved theater that wasn't really being used in a theatrical format um, unless you consider preaching theater, which of course in Los Angeles, we have a long tradition of preaching as theater. But when Dr. Jean Scott passed away and his widow took over, uh, she was a lot less welcoming, I think, than even Dr. Scott was. And, and he was always a little persnickety about who came, you know, to actually attend his, um, lectures, his, his presentations, sermon. sermons. Thank you. Uh, it's hard to think of it as a sermon when there's a cigar in your hand, so it's nice to know that this, this is now accessible as a space where you can walk in, you can gaze up and wonder at these beautiful murals. Are there Heisenberg murals? Yeah. They must be. Yeah. These beautiful Heisenberg murals, and there won't be a big, beefy security guard ready to pounce on you because he thinks you're going to assassinate the woman who is preaching. Um, so God bless the UA. God bless Dr. Jean Scott for maintaining it for so many years, and it's wonderful to have it, you know, a public space again.
0: All right, we're gonna. We're, Broadway is always on my mind, so the Ace Hotel is is gonna be a, a foundation of, a, yeah. Look forward to it. Okay, Kim, Richard, L A P L is now open again on Sunday. Baruch Hashem.
1: Yeah, um, Measure L, which had to be put actually into law because our previous mayor just thought it was a really great idea to take all of the library's funds and uh, steal them. Yeah, basically. Uh, Library never had to pay uh, for things like water and power before, and it became impossible to maintain the library as a functioning seven-day-a-week space. It it is uh, now open on Sundays again, and thank goodness. Your tax dollars at work, please go and use it. The librarians are not so happy about having to work on Sunday, though, so please be extra nice to them. You can bring cookies. You can simply smile, and don't be a pain in the neck. Thank you.
0: Kim? Tim, Tim Ude. Tim Ude, our friend, the performance artist. He's been interviewed on our show before. He was typing post office, Bukowski's post office, in front of Terminal Annex.
1: In the he, back of a flatbed pickup. Just whatever. was cool.
0: Okay. No, Tim's genius. Okay, so Tim is about to begin, in about uh, ten days, his Raymond Chandler cycle. He is starting with Farewell, My Lovely, at hanging off the, the edge of the Santa Monica Pier. He's going to type well, my lovely Tim you is a performance artist. How can artist.
1: you type while hanging off the edge well, of the... P- okay, well, it, you're, like, you're, you're being no, poetic are being poetic. No, I'm part. not. Okay, no?
0: so Tim types. Kim, you're going to explain to everyone what, exactly what he does in a minute. He's starting on the Santa Monica Pier. Uh, Jim Harrison is one of the managers of the Santa Monica Pier. He has been a visionary in bringing interesting things to this public room they have at the edge of the pier, which literally hangs over. The, the western edge of the pier over the ocean. Our good friend Paul Sand just put on that Brechtville songspiel that uh, we interviewed him about, and okay. it's back. It's ongoing. It yeah. Yes. So, so a lot of really great stuff is happening at the Santa Monica Pier. Tim is just one of them, and Kim, just quickly, let everyone understand exactly what it is he'll be doing. He'll be doing this Santa Monica for "Well, My Lovely." Uh, he'll be going to Hollywood for "Little Sister." He'll be wrapping up the whole cycle with. Oh, he'll go to Big Bear to do Laying in the Lake." Of, of course, course. Uh, he'll be wrapping up the last two novels. His the last two novels, uh, "Long Goodbye" and "Playback." He'll be wrapping that up at the uh, La Jolla Museum, and that'll be in May. And so, this is just a, an exhaustive program. We're super excited, Kim. I I, I want you to quickly explain to people uh, what what it is that 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 Tim does.
1: Well, um, Tim is a visual artist. He he does a lot of different medium of work, but what he's decided to do for these performative pieces is to sit down with a typewriter, specifically the type of typewriter that a writer that he respects and admires used in their life, and to type the complete manuscript of one of their iconic works, or in the case of this Chandler series, several of them. Um, the thing that makes it sort of special and different than just copying is he uses a single sheet of paper with a carbon behind. So by the time he finishes a long novel, he usually has a lot of really interesting holes and nooks and nicks and crannies. And it's, um, it becomes a, a diptych that is then displayed. It's pretty special work.
0: Yeah, he's, he's an utter genius. Okay, so look for that. We'll, we'll post some links and we have a URL for the Santa Monica Pier typing. We'll, we'll get that to everyone all right, uh, very quickly we need to wrap up, closely watch trains. Kevin Mulcahy, the architect up in Elysian Valley, uh, is making one last step to preserve the soon-to-be-demolished Figueroa Riverside Bridge and turn it into a green space. Nice article by Lewis Sahagan in the Times a couple days back. We'll link to that. Keep those letters and emails coming. Keep on the Department of Engineering. I think they can, they can do it. Kim. I Richard. want to uh, I want to quickly I want to quickly look ahead to some upcoming events. I know there's an event coming up that you're particularly excited about the uh, the uh, launch of your book. your book will will become available in print very soon:
1: That's true. On- February 1, the Kept Girl will be out in the world and she'll have to fend for herself, but she's a plucky maiden and I know she's going to be okay. We've got a bunch of really neat events that are coming up in the queue. Um, There's a big book release party on the 13th of February at Skylight where everyone is welcome to come and hear a little bit from the book and drink some beer and celebrate. I'll be doing Noir at the Bar on February 9, Sunday, and um, I think we maybe have a special little Kept Girl-themed Lava Salon in the works, so stay tuned. There's a newsletter, um, and we'll keep you posted about all that book-related fun.
0: Perfect, thanks, Kim. All right, Uh, the last event I want to throw out before we move into the interviews is, of course, uh, Daryl Rooney and Mark Chevalier will be speaking at the January Lava Salon. That's Sunday, January 25. Daryl will be talking about Gene Harlow. Mark will be talking about Schwab's. Uh, this this, This presentation for Mark is important because he's going to receive the Visionary of the Year. He's going to be named. He's it. He's it. He's the visionary of the year. He's a genius. So come to that, see what it's all about. Daryl and Mark are going to—they're going to knock it out of the park. I want to get into the interviews. They're really great, and I want to get to them. Our our first interview will be with Ed. So I'll introduce him. I'll introduce him first. Ed, senior arson investigator, Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. He's going to be talking about his new book. It's about arsonists you want to know about in California. I, I want to apologize to the listeners. Um, we we meant to come back online with the podcast last week before Ed's Crime Lab. Too bad. Well, we didn't because we had some, some issues with – we had some pre-press issues we had to get through. We
1: also only had like five seats left at the Crime Lab, so I didn't think it was right. a good idea to necessarily get people's hopes anyway, up and have them be disappointed. Ed's so.
0: going to talk for the last couple of minutes of his podcast about the history of bombing in America, 1876 to present day, and he'll be talking about his upcoming Crime Lab. Ah, that was yesterday.
1: That's okay, though. You can still <laughs> buy his book, yeah. and he'll come back next year. And, you know, you got to stay more on the ball with the Crime Lab stuff.
0: Right. So Ed, Ed's a genius. Look forward to that. Mark Chevalier, Lava Visionary 2014. We'll be talking about the history of Schwab's, the corner, Crescent Heights, and Sunset Boulevard. It's going to be fantastic. I want everyone, I want everyone to come to the Lava Salon. He's an utter genius. And so, Kim? unless I've missed anything, and I don't think I have. Nope. Nope. Okay. It's
1: really great to be back.
0: Let's take it away with our interview with Ed. Ed, I'm here with you. We're at Angelo's Pizzeria in Alhambra. I want you to introduce yourself, and once... You, you give us your credentials, which are impressive and exhaustive. We'll, uh, jump in, we'll jump into some books that you've written.
3: Well, My name is Ed Nordskog. I'm an arson and bomb detective with the Los Angeles Sheriff Department. Uh, I've been an arson and bomb investigator for my 18th year uh, with the Sheriff Department for almost 28 years. During that time, I've been a detective uh, in the narcotics fields, major crimes field and the robbery, robbery and burglary fields. Before that, I was in uh, the United States Marines for uh, four years, active duty, and went to college before that. Perfect. We're going to talk about two books. You wrote a book a few years back,
0: Tortured Minds. I want to talk about that. You have a, a book you just published. I want to talk about that. Uh, before, these, are, these are great books. These are case studies based on your work, which is exhaustive. Before we get started on that, just to make sure everyone understands where you're coming from, is police work as depicted in
3: films correct? Not even close. We're not nearly that tall and handsome. Okay, good. All right. Let's, um, let's start with your book,
0: Tortured Minds. This is a book about arsonists, of course,
3: which is, your subject, which is your field. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about some of the cases in this book? Well, Tortured Minds is about notorious serial arsonists in particular. And those are the people that have had three or more fire crimes. Many of them have had in excess of 100 arson attacks or even up to two and 3,000. And the book Tortured Minds uh, was written after I studied over 700 serial arson cases. Now it's been up over 1,000. Uh, I personally was involved in 31 serial arson cases and I interviewed uh, over 30 serial arsonists myself. When that was all done, I compiled uh, a book about uh, maybe the eight or nine subtypes of serial arsonists and put it into book format into Tortured Minds. Perfect. So just, um,
0: just to give us maybe a wedge to get started, to, to get to Tortured Minds, to think about it, um, I remember the first time I met you, you made some really interesting. made a really interesting statement. Uh, arsonists do not use ignition devices, yet arson investigators are trained to look for ignition devices. Could could you give us some some insight as to how you came to that realization, and perhaps use the John Orr uh, John Orr as 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 a, as a as a real life example of how you, you helped understand that.
3: Yeah, I, my statement uh, more clearly was that majority of serial arsonists do not use devices. Um, but in all the training I'd had up until I actually got involved in the study of serial arsonists, every school I'd been to, and I've been to just about every one there is, uh, told me to look for uh, an ignition device uh, at the scene of a serial arsonist. In reality, almost none of them do. If they do, it's a clear indication of what subtype of serial arsonists they are. And quite often that could be uh, the firefighter serial arsonist or the public servant, which would be the police officer, possibly a security guard, or a forest worker. If there's a subtype that does use a device, it would be that one. It's the public uh, official serial arsonist. Um, But in the general uh, world of serial arson investigation, we almost never see a device. In particular, the John Orr case um, is very famous because, as you recall, John Orr was a arson investigator himself. He's also the most famous, if not notorious, uh, serial arsonist in history. Uh, he lit about 2,500 fires by everybody's um, estimates. He used a device in most of his fires. And he's one of the rare serial arsonists that actually used the device. The problem being is, is that he was also an instructor to other arson investigators. So he convinced an entire industry that all arsonists were like him. In fact, there's nobody like John Orr in the world of arson, or even in the world of crime. He is so unique that there's been at least two or three books and movies about him, and there probably could be more. Perfect. Um, I want to
0: I want to get on to your your most recent book, but I just want to wrap up some thoughts on on arson. Um, we've when when Kim and I have lunch with you or talk to you before Crime Lab. I always use the word correlation because you, you, you talk about this a lot. You talk about correlation between serial criminals, one person engaging in different serial criminal acts and the possible crossing overs. Um, I, I remember when I first met you again, you, you talked about Son of Sam and his arson sprees. Maybe you could just talk about, about that for a second before we move on because I think it's a very interesting part of your work, This this database and these these abstractions that you're able to make because of all of your case work?
3: Well, starting back in the 1970s when I was still in high school and college, the FBI started recognizing um, that there were serial criminals, mostly serial murderers, is what they were interested in, operating all over the United States. Well, we didn't invent those criminals in the 70s and 80s. We just started noticing them due to modern police techniques, the use of a computer, and the ability to cross uh, jurisdictions with investigations. The FBI started studying serial criminals uh, in captivity, in, in the prisons. And during their interviews, uh, one of the things they noted amongst the vast majority of serial murderers is that almost all of them were serial fire setters in their youth. And they, the FBI really wasn't interested in that particular part of it, but they did note it and that, that evidence is out there in some of your, your more famous uh, serial killers were serial arsonists. Um, The son of Sam, probably being the most prolific serial arsonist in the world, was, of course, a serial killer. Uh, Ted Bundy, the Green River Killer, the Genesee River Killer, um, Jeffrey Dahmer, all of them had serial arson activity in their youth. Charlie Manson. Charlie Manson had at least two arson convictions plus numerous other events in his life. So uh, serial arson somehow goes hand-in-hand with serial killers and their psychological profile. Perfect. Perfect. Um, one, one last morsel I want you to
0: toss, toss, toss to everyone to chew on. Could you tell us if there are any other types of serial crimes that have correlations to other crimes? Like, if there's a serial, there's a serial bomber. Could is
3: there a correlation that they might engage in another type of serial crime? Certain crimes are so unique; it takes a high degree of skill. Um, very small niche of serial criminals would be a serial bomber. There's very few of them. Probably the, one of the crimes that there's the least amount of uh, documentation on. It takes a great degree of skill to be a bomber as opposed to an arsonist. Uh, anybody can start a fire, but very few people can build a bomb. The only correlation between uh, a serial bomber and another criminal would be a serial poisoner. It takes some, somebody highly intelligent with the training or at least the research or background, to become either one of those types of persons. And uh, those are very niche crimes. And the suspect pool, if you have a serial bombing or a serial poisoning, the suspect pool is extremely small. Perfect. Okay, great. So we're
0: at people that set off bombs. Your new book is sitting between us on the table here. Oh, this is... sorry. I'm sorry, your crime lab. Let's start this again. We'll, we'll, we'll back this up, okay. Okay, good. So that was, that was a nice correlation. Thank you, that's good. Let's, um, let's look at your new book, Fire Raisers, Freaks and Fiends. This is, this is more case studies, so tell us about this book. And this book just came out, so by the time we publish this, people will be able to order it uh, on Amazon. So tell us all about it.
3: Yeah, Fire Raisers, Freaks and Fiends is my second book. It is on Amazon right now, um, currently, and it's the cases that I wanted to tell in my first book, but some of these offenders are not necessarily serial arsonists. These are, are what I would call the obsessive and stalking arsonists who use arson as a tool. Uh, to commit some really horrendous crimes. And actually, most of the people in this book are worse than many of the serial arsonists as far as danger level and and danger to society and their their threats to the victims. So um, I picked out some of my best cases um, and five or six more of some friends uh, in the business who had these unique cases up and down the state of California. And these are the truly dangerous, most dangerous of all arsonists. Perfect. Perfect. We we talked about
0: bombers a minute ago. We talked about correlations, bombers, poisoners, which is interesting. Next year in in January, you're going to do another crime lab for us. Thank you. You've you've, you've been doing them that we really appreciate it because you're so great. People love you. Your topic is going to be bombing, and and you're going to talk about the history of bombing in America from 1876 basically up to the present. So what I want you to do is I want you just because you just did a great description for Kim and I a couple minutes ago. Tell us how this talk is going to break down into a couple different buckets, different periods and the different types of bombings.
3: Well as an investigator, we want to to study a crime, we want to study the motives behind the crime. And shockingly many many bomb investigators don't even know the majority of motives behind bombings. Bombings are still a fairly rare crime in in modern United States, but it was quite common for the last hundred years or so. Starting in 1876 was the big labor start of the labor movement across the United States. And for a 30-year period, there was thousands of large-scale bombings related to the labor movement. Immediately following the labor movement, and somewhat connected was in the 1920s, was the Red Scare or anarchist bombings. And those were basically bombings orchestrated by recent immigrants um, or people that were thrown out of countries in Europe um, who were involved in, in, in communist movements and anarchy. Uh, after that, uh, and by the 1950s, was the Civil Rights Era bombings. And those are probably the ones that people uh, know the least about. They include uh, thousands of fire bombings, dynamite bombings, of black churches, Jewish synagogues uh, who supported the, bl- the civil rights movement and actually the personal homes of just about everybody involved in the civil rights movement. And there's, there's so many of these bombings that are still unsolved today. Uh, which fall- After the civil rights era bombings, of course the left-wing radical bombings of the 1970s, literally thousands of them by dozens of groups. Uh, there's two p- predominant groups in that bunch Um, But there was dozens of other groups, very small subsets, that uh, were just very hard to uh, pin down. Uh, And lastly, in direct opposition to the 70s bombings was the 1980s right-wing bombings and fire bombings. Totally different groups politically, but with the same sort of attacks. And sprinkled amidst all those bombing waves is uh, organized crime bombings, which were are unique to themselves, totally different than all the rest. And I break down those groups by the tactics they use, the type of devices or bombs they used, and how they targeted somebody. Was it were they targeting a location, an institution or a person? And by by studying that those events and the tactics, you can tell which group did what type of a bombing. Perfect. So
0: just just to wrap this up again another favorite topic of of mine for you to talk about when we step back to the 70s, to to act to to the bombings in the 70s. You sometimes talk about the supply chain in Southern California of radical groups, uh, starting with, say, Charlie Manson and his followers getting dynamite out of out of the desert and bringing it down. Do you just want to talk quickly about that supply chain in Southern California at that time? Because it's it's an, interesting, it's an interesting chain to follow.
3: Sure. Most of the bombings all the way up until the 1970s in this country were done with dynamite, which is very plentiful, easy to get, and you didn't even need anything to buy dynamite, uh, maybe a license by the 1970s. By the 1970s, they start to regulate dynamite a little bit, and it was getting a little harder to find um, but one of the groups that made some money or, or got some uh, something out of dynamite was the Manson family. Part of what they are known for uh, is they were burglars. They were car thieves, and they burglarized construction sites and gold mines in the desert areas above Los Angeles. And part of what they stole was dynamite and blasting caps and those sort of supplies, and they would trade them to radical groups down in the L.A. basin in exchange for drugs. And the radical groups would in turn turn those, those, uh, that stolen dynamite into bombs and, and the cycle would continue and continue. And part of Charlie's helter-skelter, uh, real quickly, is that he um, got ripped off by a black group and got beat up and his girls got um, assaulted in a bad dynamite deal, if you will. And after that is when he declared helter-skelter against um, the various uh, radical groups in Los Angeles. Particularly the, the black groups. Perfect. Okay. This is going to be a great talk. These are great
0: books. We're going to talk to you again. I, I, just, I just want to thank you, and I hope everyone comes to your talk in January. Thank you. I hope to see everybody there at the crime
1: lab. My name is Pat Adler-Ingram. I'm in the Lumus home, and you are listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine.
0: Mark, I'm here with you. We're Greenblatt's Deli. Why don't you properly introduce yourself and tell us, because we're going to be talking about the architect that designed this building, tell us a little bit about Greenblatt's Deli.
4: Hi, Richard. It's good to be back. Uh, we've spoken in the past about the Oviet building and James Oviet. Now we've got a, a new twist in the L.A. history saga. I'm going to try to present uh, as best as I can. Uh, I'm Mark Chevalier, uh, Los Angeles historian by passion, and we are in Greenblatt's Deli. I can tell you about the building that we're in. It was designed by Alvin Nordstrom and Milton Anderson of the firm of Nordstrom and Anderson. And they also designed the building across the street from Greenblatt's, which we'll be talking about extensively today. Perfect. Perfect. So we're going to talk about Schwab's. We're going to talk about
0: the corner, specifically. We're going to talk about the south, ah, the southeast corner of Crescent Heights and Sunset. This is the border of the city of Los Angeles, and at the time, unincorporated county of, of, of Los Angeles. County of Los Angeles. West Hollywood Incorporated in, as a municipality, in 84, yeah. So everything we're talking about, if we should stray west into the Sunset Strip, That's unincorporated land. And I just like to put that on the table for everyone because, as always, things get interesting for law enforcement at uh, intersections of of jurisdiction. So, let's take a
4: deep breath. Uh,
0: Tell us about The Corner.
4: Well, The Corner, as this uh, place was popularly named, was a misnomer. It really wasn't a corner. It was one side of one short block Uh, that went westward from the corner of Sunset Boulevard and Laurel Avenue to Sunset Boulevard and Crescent Heights Boulevard. And uh, this one little block, as I say, the side of the block that faced Sunset Boulevard, uh, became a Hollywood nexus. It was a place where almost everybody in the movie industry from the top to the bottom would meet, would congregate, would spend time uh, having a lunch, having a coffee, getting their hair done uh, buying baked goods, going to the market and especially uh, uh, getting their pharmaceuticals, making their phone calls and socializing at Schwab's. Schwab's was in one section of the corner Perfect now
0: we 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 we'll, 're going to come back and we we'll, 're going to do installments I think on the history because there 's so much but i because because I, I want to get to I want to get to to film agents using Schwabs as their office because that 's such a great story. but before we do that, I think we should start at the beginning and talk about a love pirate Do you, do you, do you want to tell us about mrs paddleford
4: and and her connection to the corner Sure. Well, the corner, and again we're talking about one short block, a tract of land, was uh, developed in the early 1900s. And it was developed as a commercial and a residential uh, tract of land. And in 1920, a woman named Mrs. Paddleford showed up with her brand new husband, Dr. Paddleford, very rich oil man. And together they bought uh, three plots on this tract of land, and they happened to be the plots that constituted the corner. Mrs. Paddleford was one of the most notorious American women of the early 20th century, and the press and the public loved her for it. She was known as the international love pirate (laughs) and adventurous, and... uh, what can I tell you except that uh, she started off as a. Oh. Yeah, I think, I think what
0: we're going to do, because, because your narrative of the corner is so famous at this point, um, you actually did your, your talk. You, 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 you grew out of. You, you did a talk for Lava a while back, and you actually did a series of readings to go with your talk at Gromman, at, at the American Cinematheque. So, what I think Kim is going to do is simply read. The uh, the introduction, Mrs. Paddleford introducing yourself to the audience at your last talk.
4: So Kim will be Mrs. Paddleford uh, for a minute. I'm I'm great with that.
1: I'm ready to be Mrs. Paddleford for a minute. My name is Ellen Genevieve Marion McKinney Irwin Toomey Teal Paddleford Howells Fawcett. You may address me as Mrs. Paddleford, America's international adventurous and love pirate. That's what the world's newspapers have called me for decades. I started off as a Broadway showgirl and wiped out the fortunes and reputations of three multimillionaires. I also stole the finest things from the finest shops and hotels on three continents. In between my husband's lovers and hundreds of unpaid bills, I was locked up at Blackwell's Island, San Quentin, and in jails across Europe again and again.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Kim. That was was very good. Mark, I think... For for the take of, sake of time in this interview, you're going to have to de- tell us what happens to Mrs. Paddleford, and and we're going to have to move on. She's a deeply fascinating character.
4: Well, after Mrs. Paddleford and Dr. Paddleford bought their uh, plots of land, they, uh, they moved into a giant house on one of them, and Mrs. Paddleford became a society matron. While on the side... <coughs> uh, taking care of her multiple lovers by, uh, by having them stay with her in there when her husband was out of town and by giving them uh, gifts from her husband's wardrobe, uh, cufflinks, watches, that sort of thing. When Dr. Paddleford figured out what was going on, and when he started to see the mountains of unpaid bills that his wife was racking up, uh, he filed for divorce. Uh, Mrs. Paddleford promptly escaped to Europe with her son and daughter uh, from previous marriages and she uh, stole from the finest hotels and the finest shops. and was jailed in two different countries and her husband refused to bail her out. Understandably, when she finally came back, her husband uh, sued for divorce and she ran off to Mexico claiming she would commit suicide if anyone tried to bring her back. Dr. Paddleford got her got his divorce in absentia, and he proceeded to sell off the plots of land they held uh, that were the corner.
0: Perfect. Perfect. What I want to do is I want to jump ahead. We've talked in the introduction about the architects that built the building that Schwab's cafeteria would eventually sit in. I want to just jump into the mix. I want you to tell us about Schwab's, which moved into the drugstore space that had been developed. And I want you to give us a day in the life, 1934, Schwab's Pharmacy. Who's there?
4: Who's dropping in? What you can do? What you can... Yeah. I am going to give you one minute, if I may, about uh, the building that was built on the corner because it uh, was extraordinary and it's forgotten today. In 1931, uh, the plots of land that constituted the corner were bought by a developer who hired architects Nordstrom and Anderson to design one of the most beautiful commercial buildings in Los Angeles history. It looked like a Norman chateau, towers, archways you could walk through to get from place to place. It was faced in marble on all three sides. It was shimmering, it was expensive, especially for 1931. And one of the first uh, uh, businesses to move into this wonderful building was Schwab's. They took over a pharmacy that had been there for only a few months and had failed. And the Schwab brothers, who were all pharmacists, decided to make it the most service-oriented pharmacy in the world. At least by their uh, reckoning. A day of the life of Schwab's meant that if you were a a person of Hollywood and you were on your way to a studio or to your agent in the morning, you could stop by there at 7, get your coffee, get your prescription, read the newspaper. If it was lunchtime, you could stop by there and have one of the best uh, counter meals that were available in the city offered to you not by a cook but by a chef. If you were a little bit out of work in the afternoon, you could stay at Schwab's and nurse your coffee while using one of its three telephones indoors and two payphones outdoors, so you wouldn't lose a call from an agent. If uh, you were hungry in the evening, you could stop by and have your dinner there as well. You could pick up some fine liquor, fine perfumes as a gift, uh, and you could socialize with the movers and shakers as well as the everyday people just striving to make it in in Tinseltown. It was a special place, and everyone I've spoken to or read about uh, related to it recall it fondly. Perfect. Perfect. We've mentioned the talk you gave at the American
0: Cinematheque. It was in conjunction with the screening of the Charles Brackett, Billy Wilder film, Sunset Boulevard. Do you just because I think that 's one of the more salient public salient appearances on film of Schwabs, do you just want to talk about those, those those two scenes and just what what was what was happening there it was it was an all it was all night they they they, they go there at night, so it's really this is
4: an eat people are hanging out at the drugstore at midnight well Sunset Boulevard really wanted to capture the striving aspect of Hollywood. And they focused on Schwab's as a place for strivers, for the people who were waiting for the gravy train, uh, to quote William Holden from the film. It was a revealing look because almost uh, none of America knew what Schwab's was. Uh, And uh, Billy Wilder wanted to add a note of truth to the film. I think it was a somewhat negative portrayal uh, because you really can't see that in the film that Schwab's was considered to be a positive place by people who went there. Uh, It wasn't simply a waiting room. It was a place uh, to find comfort. It was a place to uh, have friendship. Uh, It was a place to receive uh, quality goods and quality services. A home away from home, as it were. Perfect. I want to start to look to the end of
0: Schwab's. Uh, I know that the Schwab brothers made a decision that there was going to be a remodel and a reinvention of what Schwab's was. And in addition to that, there's a, the architect John Lautner comes into play. And if you could just sort of start to take us into the decline
4: of, of Schwab's and, and what, what its, its final chapters look like. Well, a number of of things come into play here. Um, Googie's Coffee Shop, mid-century modern architecture, uh, uh, Schwab's uh, competition and desire to expand, and the decline of the old Hollywood system. In 1949, uh, Googie's Coffee Shop was built really as a lean-to right next to Schwab's. And it was completely different. It was mid-century modern, what we call Googie's architecture, an anomaly. Well, by 1955, the anomaly had become the norm for West Hollywood, and mid-century modern had conquered uh, the hillsides and uh, the commercial areas. Suddenly, this beautiful Norman castle that was the building of the corner seemed to be outdated. So the owner of the building decided to remodel it. He uh, tore off the tower, he tore down the archway, he tore off everything that looked uh, like a chateau, and he essentially made the east and west wings of the building look like two pink stucco boxes with a few windows. Unrecognizable from what it was. Schwab's took advantage of the outside remodel of the building to remodel their interior and expand. They turned to John Lautner, an African-American architect, who was one of the first uh, to be able to cross over into into the white world, you could say, and be successful at it. Professionally, Lautner designed the interior of Googles to be mid-century modern, and he did a beautiful job of it. It was extraordinarily well done, uh, far better than the exterior, I think, which were designed by someone else. If you've ever been to uh, uh, Cantor's Deli, the interior of Cantor's was also designed by John Lautner right around the same time. And that still exists, although Schwab's itself is long gone. Uh, The decline, well, Schwab's continued to be a haven for Hollywood set, but fewer and fewer strivers came, a few of the older stars, a few of the newer stars, uh, but it was no longer a hangout as it was uh, years before, and that's because the studio system had disappeared and and Hollywood had divided quite a bit. Finally, in 1983, the Schwab brothers decided to close close shop forever. Uh, It was bittersweet. Uh, There were stars that would drive by afterward and not even be able to look at the building because they felt so sad that it was gone or that Schwab's was gone from it. And in 1988, the whole building itself was finally demolished. By then, almost nobody had remembered... That it had been a uh, a Norman castle. It was simply stucco box. Perfect.
0: We're going to wrap this up today. So we're just across the street. What is
4: what is there today? Just just so people get what it is we're talking about. Well, there's a 1990s mall structure. About uh, I'd say three and a half stories high. It's supposed to be Italian Renaissance, I've been told. It's more a blocky Lego version of Italian Renaissance. It does have a tower. I've long wondered whether that was done in homage of the much earlier uh, building. But I don't know. Uh, We've got a Trader Joe's. We've got a Crunch Gymnasium. uh, We've got a couple of furniture stores. And, uh, and a movie theater, right? The Sundance Theaters, I believe. Uh, and that's what we have. But it is not, it's really nothing like what was there from 1931 to 1955 or after the remodel, uh, uh, 1955 to 1988.
0: Perfect. I want to wrap this up. I, want, I know there's a lot people don't know about Schwab's, but I want you to tell us one anecdote about Schwab. Sh- Anecdote fat about Schwab's that, I, that you want people to know that hasn't fit into the, the narrative that I've, I've, I've let you uh, spin for us.
4: I'll tell you one that's a little surprising, probably, to many people. Schwab's had its own twin uh, next door. I should say spiritual twin because they weren't uh, related in a business way. And it's, Schwab's spiritual twin was a grocery market market next door to Schwab's in in the Norman uh, castle building was a uh, called the Crescent Heights market and from the late thirties through the late fifties or sorry the late forties was owned by the crankiest man on earth (laughs) by his own admission is Sam Rubin he'd started off in the twenties as a car seat upholsterer and by the thirties he was a Brooklyn nightclub promoter got tired of the mob and came to Los Angeles in the late thirties with a wad of cash. He immediately bought this uh, grocery market in the corner. Nobody knew why, including himself. And he not only owned it, but he managed it, day in, day out. He the, the goods that he sold did not have price tags. He would call out the prices as you were buying them at the checkout counter. If you were cranky yourself, or you were snotty, or you seemed rich, the higher the price you would pay. Sam Rubin had a lot of the Schwab's regulars uh, go over to his market and hang out there when they tired of Schwab's. A lot of strivers, a lot of -of out-of-work actors, and a lot of big stars, too, uh, between movie deals. Uh, You had uh, Bob Mitchum, who already a star. He would work there as a stock boy just for fun. Uh, And you would have other stars work at the checkout counters. Again, they would be doing it for fun, just playing around. Uh, There were parties there. Sometimes starlets would get up on the checkout counters and start to dance just to annoy Sam Rubin. And they did. Uh, (laughs) Old actor Wallace Beery liked to start eating the fruit before he would buy it, and that really got uh, uh, Sam Rubin's goat as well. In other words, it was a party in a grocery store, and, uh, and Schwab's and the Crescent Heights Market, I think, were, were the, true, the true brother and sister of, of The Corner.
0: Mark, thank you. You've done a wonderful job bringing us up to speed. We're going to come back, and we're going to dig in and, and dig into earlier periods and give them a little more time, but thank you for giving
4: us this important overview of The Corner. I'm always, always happy to do this. Thank you so much. My name is Stephen G. and I'm here in the Los Angeles Athletic Club, and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine.
0: And we're done. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to our podcast for the week of January 20th, 2014. Our guests this week were Ed Nordskog, Senior Arson Investigator with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, and Mark Chevalier, Historian and Lava Visionary of the Year 2014. I want to thank everyone for listening, and I want to apologize. We, we, we've been off for a month, and I, I just, my, my rote... Uh, conditioned response to starting the podcast always includes the mention of the Pishka. Somehow I forgot that. So as we wrap up, Kim, I'm going to ask you in addition to letting everyone know how they can give us feedback, we love feedback almost as much as we love contributions to the Pishka.
1: <laughs> it's true. We love feedback, which can happen uh, via email to at, the sunshine at gmail.com or through the contact link at esoteric.com, or you can come to an esoteric tour or a lava event and let us know what you think. You can also leave reviews on the iTunes page for this podcast, which helps new listeners find us. As for the Pishka, that's the digital tip jar that helps... Um, finance contributions to this broadcast, which mainly include putting gasoline in the car and buying us donuts at Donut Man in Glendora, who's all smoked out today. So give us a little donut money and we will go out there and contribute to the donut fund. You can do that on the podcast page as well.
0: It's all about gasoline and good nature, Kim, isn't it?
1: Always, darling. if the gas is there, the fun is there.
0: You forgot about good nature. I have none. Kim. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
1: just teasing you, sweetie. What's coming up?
0: Okay. Lava Salon, January 25, Sunday. Mark Chevalier, Daryl Rooney, Gene Harlow, Schwab's Pharmacy. See you there.
1: Oh, my gosh. 1920s LA lives on Broadway. Okay, and it's Kim, free.
0: Kim, February. February is Architecture Month. We've got some architecture tours coming up. They're mine. Those I'm are excited. not
1: architecture tours. Those are California culture tours. We've rebranded them. They're much bigger than architecture. They are. Go, man, go. What do Sunday, we
0: Sunday, February 2, Sunday, my South L.A. road trip. Hot Rods, Googie, Adobes.
1: The Carpenters, space travel. We oh, go, my gosh. We go
0: Vernon, Bell, Bell Gardens, Downey. It is, it is unhinged. It is truly my greatest culture tour. It is the first one I wrote. Get on the bus. Next weekend, the 15th. No, two weeks later. The 15th, Saturday the 15th is my low down on downtown tour. Everything you wanted to know about why downtown Los Angeles is so screwed up and how how it ever could possibly come back is on this tour. Historic core, Bunker Hill, Arts District, Skid Row. It's all there. The 22nd, Saturday, February 22nd, my my joint Boyle Heights Monterey Park tour runs again. This is, of course was featured as a article in the Los Angeles Times back in August, so we're super excited that we're back. It is a great tour. Boyle we have a Heights. bunch of
1: people signed up for the tour right after the article. Yeah,
0: actually. it's, it's going to be a great They've tour. They've been waiting. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a tour about immigration history, it's a tour about immigration patterns, about the 60s, the 70s, and the
1: 80s, and... And the 1920s attempt to turn Monterey Park into the Beverly Hills of the East. Right. It's Probably the most beautiful building you didn't know was in L.A.
0: Yeah. This, this is a great tour. So get on the bus. And, and Kim, I think, um, do you want to just quickly look ahead to, to, to March?
1: Nothing would make me happier. We've got a bunch of fun tours coming up. Hotel Horrors and Main Street Vice on March the 1st. That's my downtown double feature of true crime and L.A. hotel lore. And we um, see some really beautiful buildings on that. On the 15th of March, we're going to be in Pasadena with Crime by the Clown for Pasadena Confidential. A tour about rocket science, family annihilation, assassination, and love. A lot of love on that tour. Weird West Adams is March 22nd. It's a neighborhood social history tour with a lot of really grim crimes and a beautiful walk through Rosedale Cemetery. Then in uh, we get back into the literary mode with uh, Haunts of a Dirty Old Man, Charles Bukowski's L.A. on March 29th. We're back on The Real Black Dahlia, our most popular crime bus tour, on April the 5th. And I must leave you with our once-a-year special event. yes. People have been waiting. I have a long list of people who've been pestering me about this one. Crawling down Cahuenga, Tom Waits, L.A. With David Smey, my often collaborator on musical anthologies and author of the 33 and a Third book on swordfish trombones, we will be going into the lost world of Tom Waits, 1970s Los Angeles. I love this tour. Please join us for that one.
0: Kim, I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to ask you to continue to listen, and I want to remind you.
1: You can't eat the sunshine. You can't
2: eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Hermina between South. It is divine. You can't eat the sunshine, but it's a gold mine.